I believe and I agree with Hans that there are serious issues at stake when we talk about regulating the kind of, you know, the way that people can message about an election. But we should be equally cautious when we start to say that certain people should have greater access to our government because they happen to be willing and able to pay more money. That's Ian Milheiser, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, in a debate about Citizens United with Hans von Spakovsky, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. The Howenstein Center hosted the debate in 2015, but the issues the debate addresses are still very relevant today. Here's a quick brush up. The 2010 Supreme Court case Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission, or the FEC, was a landmark case. In it, the Supreme Court decided that the First Amendment prohibits the government from restricting independent expenditures made by corporations and labor unions in elections. Those in favor of the decision say it's a victory for political speech in this country. Opponents say it gives corporations and the rich unlimited power over the democratic process. On December 7th, just a day ago, Andy Kroll suggested in Mother Jones that Citizens United has a lot to do with this tax bill the GOP has gotten through Congress. Kroll claims that the very political culture which supports and provides some foundation for the Citizens United decision also justifies what he takes to be the worst aspects of this tax bill. Kroll writes, quote, When I say that Citizens United explains the GOP's tax bill frenzy, I really mean the big money political climate that Citizens United helps create and broadly speaking embodies. So let's hear the Howenstein Center's debate on Citizens United. First to make his argument is Hans von Spakovsky, who supports the decision. He's followed by Ian Milheiser, who opposes it. But before we hear from them, I'll play a few clips from an introduction to the debate given by Judge Hugh Brenneman, a recently retired federal magistrate judge for the United States District Court for the Western District of Michigan. In his introduction, Judge Brenneman summarizes the main details of the Citizens United decision, as well as the dynamics of the controversy surrounding it. Brenneman also explains some terms that he thinks are often misused in debates about Citizens United. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. In Citizens United, the Supreme Court held that the prohibitions in the McCain-Feingold Act, which restricted independent expenditures by corporations and unions, violated the First Amendment's protection of free speech. Justice Kennedy, writing for the five-person majority, argued that the First Amendment protects associations of individuals as well as individual speakers, and further that the First Amendment does not allow prohibitions of speech based on the corporate identity of the speaker. Corporations, as associations of individuals, therefore have free speech rights under the First Amendment. Also, independent expenditures made by corporations, the court concluded, do not give rise to, corp- to corruption or the appearance of corruption. Now, Justice Stevens, writing for the four dissenters, said that corporations are not actually members of society. He cited Judge John, pardon me, Chief Judge John Marshall, Chief Justice John Marshall, pardon me, for the age-old proposition that a corporation is an artificial being, invisible, intangible, and being a mere creature of law, it possesses only those properties which the charter of its creation confers upon it. 
As far as regulating speech based on a speaker's identity is concerned, Stevens noted that the government routinely imposes such restrictions, pointing to those restrictions on the rights of students, prisoners, members of the armed forces, foreigners, and even its own employees. And finally, Stevens dismissed the idea that the majority of the majority's belief that quid pro quo, quid pro quo corruption, that is the direct exchange of, of an official act for money, is the only type to be concerned with. Because this belief, he said, was not in accord with the reality of politics. Well, the Citizens United controversy simmered, as I said, and was rekindled last April with the court's decision in McCutcheon versus the FEC, sometimes referred to as Citizens United Second, which struck down an aggregate limit on the contributions that people can make as a violation of free speech. And the controversy exploded back onto the front page two weeks ago as seven protesters were forcibly ejected from the tranquil Supreme Court courtroom in Washington, D.C., something that never happens. The protesters' message was speech, pardon me, money is not speech, and corporations are not people. In a moment, I'm going to be turning the microphone over to the first of our speakers. The order of speaking was determined earlier this evening by the toss of a carefully inflated football. <laughs> well, it seemed like a good idea. Actually, we flipped a coin. Mr. Hans von Spakowski will go first. Each speaker will have 10 minutes to make his initial presentation with five minutes for rebuttal. We'll then open it up to the audience for questions. And I'm confident everybody will be on their best federal courtroom behavior. Finally, I will give each speaker a closing minute for any final thoughts, caveats, disclaimers, mea culpas, apologies, or retractions. Before we begin, there are a couple of terms we ought to be familiar with from the outset that might be confusing. And I will, of course, defer to our speakers to elaborate. On these points, they are the experts. The first is the word contribute. A contribution is money given to a candidate or his or her political committee. Now, by contrast, an independent expenditure is money spent that expressly advocates the election or defeat of an identifiable candidate. But this money is not considered a contribution because it is spent without collaborating with a candidate or a political party. So when Butch and Dave and I were in second grade in 1952, and Eisenhower was running for president against Adlai Stevenson, and Dave, whose father had been a colonel in World War II, wanted to support Eisenhower, he sent his 50 cents directly into the Eisenhower campaign. That was a contribution. Butch didn't have 50 cents, but he did have a lot of paper and crayons, and he made a lot of signs that said, I like Ike, but I'm voting for Adley. And he posted them on trees all over the neighborhood. To the best of my knowledge, Butch never called up the Democratic Party headquarters to coordinate this with Adley's campaign. Today, these would be considered independent expenditures. I, of course, was nonpartisan. <laughs> As things stand today, after Citizens United, Dave would be able to contribute money directly to General Eisenhower, but would be limited to a several thousand dollar cap. Butch could give unlimited millions to a super PAC, political action committee. 
that could plaster airwaves with TV ads saying, vote for Adley, as long as the super PAC did not coordinate its ads with Adley's campaign. Of course, Butch would be listed as a donor uh, to the super PAC. If Butch wanted to achieve the identical result anonymously, he could give his unlimited millions to what are called social welfare nonprofits. These are 501c organizations that can do the same thing super PACs can do, but don't have to identify their donors. In fact, they can just pass the money to a super PAC, which only has to list the 501c organization as the donor. Some of these are well known. The NRA, Planned Parenthood. Some are newer, such as the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity, and Carl Rove's Crossroads GPS. And now, there are no caps restricting corporations or unions from spending all of their money independently, but on behalf of or in opposition to a candidate. According to the New York Times a week ago, in last year's 2014 election, the 100 biggest donors spent more money than did the four and three quarter million Americans taken together who made donations of $200 or less. In next year's 2016 election, it's estimated that nearly $8 billion will be spent on the presidential and congressional elections. Question, is Citizens United good for American democracy? Let's hear what the experts have to say, shall we? Mr. Von Spakowski, your thoughts. Thank you, Judge. I have to say that was the best explanation of the difference between a direct contribution and independent expenditure I've, I've heard, especially the thing about uh, pictures with crayons. Um, <laughs> I, I brought a copy of this great uh, book that the Hounstein Center puts out. It's got the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in a very handy size that you can keep in the inside pocket of your jacket. And I thought it, I, I should pull it out because, you know, the First Amendment is very clear, very simple. You know, on the part that we're concerned about says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. It doesn't say Congress can abridge the speech of certain individuals or certain associations or unions or corporations. It says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Yeah, there are some exceptions that the judge talked about. For example, prisoners in state penitentiaries, uh, there, there could be some limitations on that. There are other limitations uh, for clear and present danger, but it's a pretty simple amendment. And I'm here to tell you that I think the first, the, the Citizens United decision was a good decision, and I think it restored a vital part of the First Amendment that had been restricted by Congress. Now, it's important for you to understand that there were two provisions at issue in that case. And before I get into it, let, I want to talk about what, what the case was actually about. Citizens United was a nonprofit small organization in Washington, and they decided to make a movie about Hillary Clinton. It was called Hillary Clinton, the, Hillary the Movie. Now, this was not any different than the kind of documentary you might see on HBO. Uh, it was not very flattering to Hillary. It interviewed a lot of people who had worked and known her who didn't have very nice things to say about her, but nowhere in the movie did it ever say that people should vote for or against her. Okay, it was a documentary about her. Now, they wanted to run ads 
starting in January 2008, to have people uh, buy the movie. They, they, some, it was, some of it was shown in theaters, uh, pay-per-view, DVDs. Uh, they could not run an ad advertising their movie because if they did, they would violate federal law. Now, why is that? Well, the ban on corporations being able to contribute directly to federal candidates has been in place for more than 100 years, since 1907. But it wasn't until 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act, uh, not only added labor unions to that ban on direct contributions, but in 1947, uh, Congress also passed a second ban. And this one said that corporations and unions, not only can they not contribute directly to federal candidates, but they can't engage in independent political expenditures. And that meant, for example, if the AFL-CIO thought that someone running for president was going to be bad for unions, and they wanted to buy a full-page ad in the, uh, uh, what's the paper, Grand Rapids Press, right? They wanted to buy a full-page ad saying uh, this presidential candidate would be bad if he's elected president. Don't vote for him. They could not do that. Now, Harry Truman considered that provision such a violation of the First Amendment that he vetoed it and was overridden by Congress. That particular provision, um, the constitutionality of it, never got to the Supreme Court before the Citizens United decision. There were two cases that did get to the Supreme Court concerning that ban on independent political expenditures, which is really independent political speech. They did get to the Supreme Court. In both cases, the court disposed of them on statutory grounds. In one case, I think they said that the, the provision really didn't apply to what had happened. The dissenters in both of those cases said, no, we should have decided this on a constitutional basis, and we should have thrown out this federal statute because it was a violation of the First Amendment. And I tell you that because the dissenters in those cases, one in the 1940s, one in the 1950s, were some of the liberal stalwarts of the Supreme Court, uh, including Earl Warren, Hugo Black, and William Douglas. So, you know, today you get this picture that it was these terrible conservatives on the court who decided the Citizens United decision. But these earlier, very liberal justices of, on the Supreme Court said this provision was unconstitutional. Now, Congress made this ban even worse. In 2002, they passed what they called the Electionary Communications Provision. And it said that if you're a corporation or a union, you cannot run an advertisement on radio or TV, cable, if it names a federal candidate and you're within 30 days of a primary and 60 days of the general election. So let's go back to my union example. If Congress was going to pass a law that would ban unions in the United States, and the AFL-CIO wanted to run a, a, a national TV ad that said, this is a horrible bill. Please call senators, and they named the senators. Let's say in Michigan they named the two sitting senators, and the AFL in their ad said, Please call you know, Senator Smith and Senator Jones and tell them, do not vote for this bill. 
if they ran that ad within 60 days of the November election, which they might have to do if Congress scheduled it for uh, October 15th date, they would be violating federal law. And they could be prosecuted for it. And in fact, the head of Citizens United, David Bossie, uh, was in danger of being prosecuted if they simply ran an ad that asked people to buy their movie about Hillary Clinton. Why? Because she was a candidate for office. So those are the two provisions that were before the Supreme Court. Now, I think they made the right decision because um, it was very interesting. You know, not only were they banning independent political speech by uh, unions and, and corporations, but you know, they had a big exception in it. If you were the New York Times company, there was an exception for you. So there was no even playing field there. You know, if you owned a newspaper, uh, if you owned uh, NSNBC or Fox News, I think MSNBC at the time was owned by General Electric, why well, you could engage in all the political speech you wanted to. But again, if you were a union or a regular corporation and you wanted to engage in political speech to counter what the editorial page of the New York Times was doing, for example, endorsing a presidential candidate, you couldn't do it because you were banned by federal law from doing it. Now, the notion that the First Amendment only covers individuals is short-sighted at best. Each of you has a First Amendment right to engage in political free speech and engage in independent political expenditures, like, you know, spending your own money to go take out an ad in the local newspaper to say, don't vote for somebody. You don't lose those rights simply because you associate with others in a group. Perhaps get together with five of your friends so you can pool your money. And maybe you incorporate for reasons of limiting your political risk. You don't lose your right to uh, speak because of that. Uh, let, me, let me give you a quote very quickly uh, that there was a very telling moment during the first oral argument. Remember, that electionary communications provision just applied to ads, right, on TV and radio. Justice Roberts said to the government, to the Justice Department, they, he said, well, if Congress wanted to extend, ch change the law and extend it to books, could they do that? Could the government ban books with a political message if it's produced by a company or a labor union? The answer of the Deputy Solicitor General was, we could prohibit the publication of the book. So what Chief Justice Roberts said was, the government was urging the court to embrace a theory of the First Amendment that would, quote, allow censorship not only of television and radio broadcasts, but of pamphlets, posters, the internet, and virtually any other medium that corporations and unions might find useful in expressing their views on matters of public concern. Now, my answer to speech that people don't like you know, you don't like the speech that some of these people with a lot of money are engaging in? Well, the answer to that is more speech. And if you don't like what one particular person is saying, uh, speak out against them. And if you want to multiply your voices, then do what Americans have been doing since Alex de Tocqueville wrote about it, which is you join an association that can multiply your voice. And remember, this ban on corporations extended not just to profit corporations, but also to Nonprofits like um, uh, the NRA, 
Planned Parenthood, the Sierra Club, doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right. L let me end by saying this. There are a lot of complex legal issues in this case. Um, but what it boiled down to was this. Uh, do you want to live in an, Amer in an America where somebody can be prosecuted by the Justice Department and put in jail because they produced a political documentary? Because that was the status of the law. I don't want to live in a country like that. That's why I think Citizens United was a great decision. Thanks. Thank you. All right, thank you, Judge. Uh, you know, such is the majesty of the law that it allows both rich and poor alike to write $100,000 checks to super PACs. I am going to start with an origin story. Um, and my origin story goes back to the 1970s because much of our uh, modern campaign finance framework was built in the post-Watergate era. It was built then because there was rampant corruption in both the executive and the legislative branch of gov government. It was bipartisan. Um, one example of the corruption you saw was there was a Nixon operative who literally tried to sell an ambassadorship for $100,000. Literally says, you, you give these campaigns 100,000 bucks, I'll make you the ambassador to Trinidad. That was the deal that was offered. Um, but there are other forms of corruption. Um, an oil CEO said that, uh, testified to Congress that campaign contributions were reviewed as a calling card. If you wanted to get in with a member of Congress and speak to them, you had to pay for the privilege. Um, another CEO, an airline CEO, said that he felt pressured to give donations because he feared that if he did not make them, then Congress would pass laws that advantage his competitors to the detriment of his company. And so there were two different forms of corruption that were going on there. One is what the judge referred to previously as quid pro quo corruption, dollars for favors corruption. Dollars for favors corruption happens when I walk up to a congressman and I say, here's my money. And if you want this money, I want you to vote yes on this bill. Where there's an explicit deal where the, where the money is conditional upon a particular favor. But there's another type of, uh, of corruption at stake there. You know, when, the, when that oil executive spoke about money being a calling card, he wasn't speaking about an explicit arrangement. He wasn't speaking about an arrangement where he said, I've got a particular thing I want you to do, and if you do it, you get the money. He was speaking about dollars for access. I have this money, and I, with this money, I will, use the, I will buy the privilege of getting in to speak to you, Mr. Very Powerful Person. Flash forward to Citizens United. The holding of Citizens United is it drew a sharp line between those two forms of corruption. Prior to Citizens United, the law had been that, yes, there are strong First Amendment issues at stake when we talk about campaign finance. But campaign finance laws are allowed when needed in order to ward off corruption. Citizens United said that the government can still regulate dollars for favors. So if Congress wants to take steps to make sure that I can't go up to a congressman and say, here's my bribe, and in return for that bribe, I want you to vote this way, that's, Congress can still ban that. But they said that what Chief Justice Roberts once described as mere access or influence, when money is used to buy mere influence or access, that is not corruption. And according to the Supreme Court of the United States, 
that is not something that our law can prevent. And they actually went even further than that. Because there's this interesting passage in the Citizens United opinion where the court talks about this kind of additional access and additional um, you know, ability to get things done in Washington that donors have as if it was a positive yeah. good. You know, this is, I'm quoting the Citizens United opinion with this passage. Favoritism and influence are not avoidable in representative politics, the opinion says. It is the nature of an elected representative to favor certain policies and by necessary corollary to favor the voters and contributors who support those policies. It is well understood that a substantial and legitimate reason, if not the only reason to cast a vote for or to make a contribution to one candidate or the other, is that the candidate will respond by producing those political outcomes the supporter favors. Democracy is premised on responsiveness. Those were the words of the most powerful court in the country. Now, I do not think that democracy is premised on that sort of responsiveness. I believe, and I agree with Hans, that there are serious issues at stake when we talk about regulating the kind of, you know, the way that people can message about an election. That is something we should be cautious about. But we should be equally cautious when we start to say that certain people should have greater access to our government because they happen to be willing and able to pay more money. That is something I also think that the law should prevent. So I think this distinction between dollars for favors and dollars for access is a false distinction. And I think that Citizens United was wrong because it relied on this false distinction. And I'll give two other examples of how this distinction fosters a kind of corruption. Now, the, kind, the average cost of winning a house race in the United States in the last cycle was $1.7 million. If you wanted to be a congressman, that's about how much money you had to raise every two years, $1.7 million. If you want to be in the Senate, $10.5 million. That's the cost of the average victorious Senate race, $10.5 million. Go to Capitol Hill, you walk a little bit down the hill, on the bottom of the hill is a Mexican restaurant, and on the way, you'll pass two buildings. One of them's the DNC, one of them's the RNC. At the top of both of those buildings, there is a phone bank where senators and congressmen literally go every day, sometimes spending three or four hours a day, dialing for dollars. Our congressmen are glorified telemarketers. And the people that they're calling don't necessarily look like America, because not everyone in America can afford to write them a big check. Now, what the rise of super PACs has done is they have made that process even worse. I've been told by members of Congress they spend about a third of their time now on fundraising. What members of Congress live in terror of is that with the rise of super PACs, a big rush super PAC money can come in at the end, and if you don't have money in your bank account to respond to it, you're dead. And so they have to raise more than that $1.7 million I talked about, because they have to have a buffer in their account. So if that super PAC shows up with that ad making some spurious claim about them, they have enough money left over to respond. 
That is more money spent at the top floor of the DNC, the RNC, more money spent dialing for dollars, and that is less time spent learning what they're voting on. That is less time spent with their constituents. That is less time spent educating themselves on the issue and is less time spent working with their colleagues so they can find a way to actually get something done. That is one of the costs of Citizens United. A second related cost, I think it's important to understand how lobbyists function in Washington. Because at least when I, before I came to Washington, I thought that lobbyists had a sort of nefarious influence where they could throw money around and they could be buddy-buddy. That's actually not why lobbyists are effective. A good lobbyist isn't someone who necessarily has a lot of money backing them, although that helps. A good lobbyist is someone that a member of Congress trusts to advise them. Members of Congress don't have much time, and they're spending a third of it raising money. So because they don't have time to educate themselves on the issue, they have to rely on someone else to do it. And that service is increasingly privatized in Washington. That's what lobbyists do. It's, the congressman needs to know right away about some complex health policy issue, so they call, up the lo they call up the lobbyist who works for the health insurance companies, or they call up the lobbyist who works for the hospitals, or they call up someone else, not because that person is buddy-buddy with an interest group, but because that person knows the answer. And over time, as you take away more of these members of Congress' time, they're going to depend more and more on these individuals who aren't doing that job because they're there to serve their country. They're doing that job because they're there to serve their client. That is another way that Citizens United helps to increase the amount of corruption in DC. So I will finish by saying that, you know, I don't really disagree all that much. You know, we, we started by talking about a need for common ground, and I don't disagree that there are powerful cautions that we need to have when we start talking about how people are going to uh, regulate how we talk about elections. It's a dangerous place. But I am more frightened of the world that we are going to live in if our government is for sale to the highest bidder. And we cannot be so myopically focused on one threat that we ignore the threats that led to CEOs having to pull together their money to buy a meeting with a congressman and people like me who don't have that kind of money being left out in the cold. Well, thank you. Thank you. Now we have an opportunity for each of our speakers to have five minutes for rebuttal. We'll start with Hans. Well, with all due respect to Ian, a lot of what he just said had absolutely nothing to do with Citizens United. Okay? Uh, he keeps saying, using contributions to uh, by, by members of Congress, um, the amount you can contribute directly to a federal candidate is limited and has been limited for now almost 40 years. Okay, you can't give $100,000 to a congressional candidate. Right? The limit used to be $1,000. In 2002, it got up to $2,000, and it got indexed for inflation. So right now, it's about $2,600 that you can give per election to federal candidates. What we're talking about here are independent political expenditures. And none of the so-called corruption that he talks about, listen, if a congressman is engaging in quid pro corruption with um, a contributor, 
You know, if the congressman agrees, he's going to vote a particular way. If he gets a contribution, that is against the law. And those cases get prosecuted by civil, uh, state, and federal prosecutors. And if you have any doubt about that, uh, do a quick Google search right now, and you'll find that the uh, district attorney in Philadelphia is right in the process of, of uh, prosecuting state legislators for that exact thing. What we're talking about here is uh, you as individual Americans being able, for example, to join a membership organization on an issue you believe in. Let's say one of your important issues is abortion. Now, I don't care which side of that issue you're on. There are membership organizations that you can join. They're going to push the point of view that you think is right on that issue. Every single one of those organizations is incorporated and is a corporation. And I think that if that membership organization that you join wants to spend $100,000 or $500,000 of its members' money to go out and support, uh, to, to buy advertisements independently, that will urge people to vote for members of Congress that they think will vote the way they would like them to on that issue, you know, that's the system we have and that's the way it ought to work. And I don't think the government should be coming in and telling them, you can't speak. I used to have to do that at the Federal Election Commission back when this law was in place. And I have to tell you, it made me very uncomfortable being a government bureaucrat who was deciding who could speak and what they could say. And that's the situation you would have if Citizens United were reversed. I want to tell you a story about a man named Sheldon. Sheldon is Bond villain rich. Sheldon is so rich that his net worth exceeds the gross domestic product of 23 different nations put together. Sheldon is Sheldon Adelson, and I pick on him because Sheldon was also the top spender in the 2012 election cycle. He spent $150 million on the, on the uh, 2012 election cycle, which to him was about as much of a financial hit as if I bought a nice hotel room. This man is fantastically rich. He happens to be a Republican, and I, as I said, I'm picking on him because he was the top donor. There are plenty of Democrats who have this kind of relationship with Democratic politicians as well. Mr. Adelson, after, you know, who gave this $150 million to help, to help uh, elect Republicans, got two private meetings with the then candidate for the Republican Party, Mitt Romney. I don't know what went on in those meetings. You, you know, Sheldon Adelson is a very successful uh, casino businessman. It's possible that the, you know Romney was thinking about opening a casino and he wanted some advice. You, you know, it, 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 it's possible that you know they just wanted to get together and uh, you know talk about their kids. But I suspect the reason why a man who spent $150 million to try to elect politicians in one party decided to give two audiences with the uh, presidential nominee of that party is because he had some policy ideas. And he thought maybe he would share them. You, you know, the, the distinction that Hans drew, the distinction that the judge drew, and the distinction that Citizens United draws 
between independent expenditures and donations directly to a candidate. And very little of that money, that $150 million I mentioned before, was given directly to candidates. Most of it was given to super PACs or similar organizations. The, uh, the difference, the idea that somehow it won't foster corruption if you give money to a super PAC, because that candidate couldn't possibly find out who's giving money to these super PACs couldn't possibly find out who their benefits are and couldn't possibly be grateful to them and want to, say, have a meeting with them. In Mitt Romney's case, one of them in Sheldon Adelson's office in Las Vegas and another one while, he, while the two of them were visiting Jerusalem. You, you know, again, the, the idea that no one knew who Sheldon Adelson is or that no one knows who any of the other people are who are lavishing all this money um, on, the, on these donors is fascinating. You know, the idea that you know, donors don't have mouths and when they inevitably get the call from the congressman who is dialing for dollars, they can't say, oh, by the way, uh, I gave $50,000 to the super PAC who supports you. Can we talk about this bill that I like? You know, the idea that that doesn't go on frankly strikes me as naive. And that is why I think this Citizens United case was wrongly decided. It's because it, in the process of drawing this distinction that I mentioned before between dollars for favors and dollars for access, it assumes that there's never going to be any kind of favoritism going on just so long as the money goes through a separate organization and not to the, the, the candidate's account. I don't think that's right. I don't think the experience that we have had with people like Sheldon Adelson and others like him has, has borne out that experience. And ultimately, that's why I think this case was wrong. I, I think it was a case that comes from a lack of understanding of how the relationship between donors and candidates will actually work. And for that reason, I think it should be overruled. All right. Thank you. That was Ian Milheiser and Hans von Spakovsky debating Citizens United. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadarj Barr and I edited the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service, a program that addresses many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howenstein.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.